0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable, and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to the elders past, present, and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.
2: I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible Too many people were confused uh, you bet you are uh, you bet I am I have always believed in miracles That's not a policy
0: Not now, not ever I mean... <laughs> These comments are completely inappropriate
2: oh, I'm sure she's
3: right yeah,
0: But I ain't spending any time on it
3: How pathetic You're a classic space
2: invader
1: Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures You should be ashamed of yourselves
4: Fair
0: shake
1: of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage brought to you from the lush and now almost spring-like surrounds of Crawford School of Public Policy. And it's brought to you in partnership with our friends at the Australian Studies Institute and of course the School of Politics and International Relations here at the Australian National University. I'm Martin Pierce, and I'm here to keep an eye on the democracy sausage hot plate and ensure that your bangers aren't burned and your chops aren't charcoaled while Mark Kenny takes a well-deserved break. And honestly, that sounds like more responsibility than I'm probably capable of, especially as today's sausage sizzle is a special occasion. It is episode number 100. Hang on, my script here tells me to wait for whoops of excitement from the panelists when I make that announcement. So let's have another crack, shall we, panelists? (laughs) 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 I haven't queued you up yet. All right, let's let's try it. That's right, panelists, it's episode number
4: 100. (laughs) 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 Woo! I have a bone to pick with you, Martin. Uh, It's It's been 100 episodes, and I've yet to receive a sausage. I
1: mean... The, the, no actual sausages are yes. harmed in the making of the show. Even
4: a vegan one <laughs> or a piece of cheese, anything. But the you do get nice tea. I do get nice tea, that's true, that's true. Are
1: it's, you enjoying today's tea?
4: I am enjoying today's tea. What is today's tea called, It's, it's a black
1: tea. It's, a, it's called London, Singapore. It's oh. a black tea with some kind of exotic peppers in it and... Possibly strawberry? I don't know.
4: Echoes of empire. I love it.
1: (laughs) So uh, we are celebrating today with a feast of terrific experts. And I hope that doesn't sound like I'm planning on eating you all. Um, So let's introduce them all before I start to get too hungry and they start looking at me nervously. Uh, Returning to the hot plate today is Professor Frank Bongiorno. He's the head of the ANU School of History, and he's an expert on Australian political, cultural and labour history. How are you, Frank?
3: I'm well, thanks, Martin.
1: We also have Jacinta Carroll with us here. She is a senior research fellow for the Counterterrorism and Social Cohesion Project at the National Security College here at the ANU. Hello, Jacinta.
0: Hello, Martin. Hello, everyone else. And loving the commemorative golden sausages. For the hundredth episode,
1: and <laughs> <laughs> um, with us as always is the excellent Dr. Maria Taflaga. She is the director of the Australian Politics Studies Centre. Hello, Maria. How are you?
4: Hi. Can we get can we get like little badges or something?
1: Or some, some kind of commemorative yeah.
4: plate. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, or,
1: pl- or a yes. spoon, maybe. You Ooh, know, that collection? Yes. Have people have those collections of spoons? That's
0: right. I could start one. yes. Uh, a
1: democracy sausage spoon, it is.
0: Maybe a t shirt with an extra splash of sauce on exactly. it. Exactly. Huh. Exactly. Fair shake.
1: But wait, there's more, because we also have a very special guest coming to you live from somewhere within state boundaries, where even at 11am, as we record this, he's probably sipping a margarita in the jacuzzi while lounging around in a Hawaiian shirt. Hello, Professor Mark Kenny.
2: <laughs> Hello, Martin. It's great to be here on the 100th episode of this, uh, this podcast, uh, which... Uh, We've been, you know, doing pretty much ever since uh, the lead up to the 2019 election, and uh, it's amazing that we've got to 100.
1: How does it feel to be a guest on your own podcast?
2: Uh, it feels slightly surreal, actually. It's um, it's uh, but it's quite fun. I'm very much enjoying. I, I look, I I, f- I noted that you said it was uh, uh, lovely spring weather there in the capital, but. Uh, up in the northern northeast corner of New South Wales, where I am, not far away from Byron Bay, I can tell you the weather is absolutely superb.
4: I'd like to interrupt you now, Mark. I'm sick of hearing how nice things are over there.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I've got to I've got to say it while I can because. Um, Even the simple business of moving around this country has become highly problematic and for many people just impossible. And, of course, we know as ACT residents that even though there hasn't been a single active case of COVID in more than seven weeks in the ACT, the Queensland government, in its wisdom, decided to declare the entire state of New South Wales and the ACT because it is within that uh, that overall boundary, uh, um, effectively COVID hotspot, and uh, so we couldn't even go to uh, to Queensland, even from the ACT, or indeed to South Australia. It's. Uh very bizarre state of affairs that we all find ourselves in.
1: Are you suggesting they did that specifically to keep you within state borders, Mark?
2: Uh, I think it, I, I did take it pretty personally, i got to say.
1: Now, before we get into the meat of today's episode, obviously this is episode number 100. Mark, do you have a favourite guest that you've had on the podcast? Presumably it's someone sat around the table right now.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's uh, it's either Maria Teflaga, Jacinta Carroll or Frank Pongiorno. <laughs> Uh, Or indeed Martin Pierce. I'm
0: here every week. (laughs) That's my top four right there. Well, look, 100
1: episodes in and uh, I think it's fair to say the series has come a a very long way since we started. In fact, as a little treat, we've dug deep into the archives and uh, we pulled out a little recording from episode one to show just how far we've come. Let's have a quick listen to that now.
2: Good day to you, ladies, gentlemen, and children. My name is Professor Mark Kenny of the Australian Studies Institute, based at the tremendous campus of the Australian National University, here in your national capital, Canberra. This is Democracy Sausage Podcast, coming to you live in your sitting rooms via the marvellous technology that is your wireless. The year is 1950, and the Prime Minister is Sir Robert Menzies. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, Bob is back. No doubt King George is happy that Menzies is British to his bootstraps. Now, in the modern era, politics in the Commonwealth is full of cut and thrust. Information travels devilishly quickly, mostly through the device to which you are listening right now. And there's more jiggery-pokery than I can shake my left boot at. In this fast-moving world, news and commentary is fleeting, often swept up and forgotten by the next news bulletin. But here in the capital... To help you cut through the noise today is a capital collection of scholars.
1: Wonderful. Well, that was fun to listen to. Was any, anyone around the table here for episode one back in 1950?
4: No, I think I came in in episode four.
2: <laughs> yeah, I said it was, uh, we started in, in uh, the election campaign of 2019, but I now might think it, it was 20, in 1919, perhaps. It uh, seems like a long time ago. Who was that buffoon?
4: <laughs> no one knows. I'll stop talking like this now.
1: (laughs) Anyway, on to serious matters. By way of introduction, what have we learned from the last week? Well, this week parliamentarians may have returned to Canberra, but many political watchers have been casting their eyes further afield, particularly in China's general direction. First to the table to dine on this week's political controversy, as well as Australian beef and wine, two products that have been a source of tension between the two countries, was the deputy head of China's embassy in Australia, Wang Jining. He told the audience at the National Press Club that it was shocking to hear Australia call for a coronavirus crisis investigation when China wasn't first consulted. Next to take a seat, was Prime Minister Scott Morrison announcing the government was pursuing powers to stop state and territory governments as well as universities entering into agreements with foreign governments that it considered detrimental to foreign policy. He was probably looking at the seat saved for Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews while saying it as the Victorian state government's decision to sign up to China's Belt and Road Initiative could be one such agreement in the government's sights. But foreign policy was far from the only thing on the government's menu this week. The aged care crisis continued to take a toll. Over 400 Australian aged care residents have now lost their lives in the COVID-19 pandemic, the vast majority of whom have been in Victoria. And while the death toll in Victoria has continued to grow, new infection numbers seem to be dropping, giving residents of the state a ray of hope after living through stage four lockdown since the beginning of august that fall in new infections is in contrast to trends elsewhere though notably in europe where concerningly infection numbers are starting to climb again in one of those countries the uk as we found out on last week's democracy sausage extra things are pretty tough with some fairly stubborn new infection numbers uh, pressure on the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, to reopen schools and an economy which has shrunk by 20% in the last quarter. Not good news, but at least they now have Tony Abbott to help them navigate a new world of trade deals from outside the European Union. It would probably be great news for onion farmers <laughs> everywhere. So let's, let's turn to the first of those issues. Maybe Tony Abbott. Um, back in 2017, Tony Abbott wrote a column for the Spectator Australia that when negotiating trade deals with China, Japan and South Korea. His contribution was, quote, to ensure that we weren't sidetracked by peripheral issues such as labour and environmental standards. Mark, does that give us any insights into what priorities Tony Abbott might have as a trade envoy for the UK?
2: Well, I think uh, what we can take from the fact that Tony Abbott is uh, having this Role is taking this role is that he's intending on uh, prosecuting uh, the case that he's always prosecuted, really uh, as a politician of long standing, as a prime minister, as a as a minister before that, um, as an Australian monarchist. I mean, this bloke is essentially kind of uh, you know a a team player, uh, one of the most partisan politicians we've seen, ideologically and sort of religiously committed to his own side of politics and that's why he's so attracted to this job because the business of, uh, of Brexit, of uh, withdrawing Britain from Europe um, and, and uh, making that stick... He sees that as a political exercise and one in which he's uh, firmly committed to that, that uh, side of politics, and that's what he's going to do, I think. it's. I, I mean, I, I think a lot of Australians will look at it and think, hang on, this is the bloke that used to bang on about Team Australia. He suddenly signed up with Team Britain. Uh, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. Maria, what did you make of that appointment?
4: Oh, I, th- I thought it was a bit surprising, um, I guess when I first heard about it, but it, it does, for the reasons Mark said, uh, make a lot of sense in, 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 in the terms of what Johnson is trying to achieve, um, repositioning Britain in, in a new kind of global market. One of the things that I heard an awful lot, uh, from, from conservative leaning voters in particular when I was in the UK was this sort of, uh, return to the Commonwealth, um, and return to Commonwealth markets, um, which was always kind of, um, sort of surreal to hear given that, um, Britain abandoned us in the, in the mid sixties and, uh, we've diversified our markets, um, since then and I'm not, I'm not, I'd, I'd be interested to see the structure of a, a, an agreement between Australia and the UK, given that one of the primary things that I think Australians would want out of such a deal would be freedom of movement and work rights, and that's kind of exactly what Brexit turned on. Um, so I just don't really see what the capacity is to sort of rekindle these kind of connections. But Tony Abbott might be the kind of person who could help with some of those dimensions and also, you know, uh, help to sort of push the the Brexit barrow along.
1: The news hasn't been greeted universally uh, with, with popular acclaim in the UK. Frank, the UK Shadow Trade Secretary, Emily Thornberry said, and I'm going to read this entire quote, I just find this appointment absolutely staggering. On a personal level, I am disgusted that Boris Johnson thinks this offensive, leering, cantankerous, climate change-denying, Trump-worshipping misogynist is the right person to represent our country overseas. What do you make of that? Nobody's (laughs) perfect, I guess. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's brutal. There's been
3: some pretty ripe commentary from... You know, Marina Hyde, uh, Nick Cohen, uh, The Guardian. Um, Yeah, it hasn't been terribly well received. Uh, I'd go a bit further than Maria. Um, I wasn't surprised. I was flabbergasted. I mean, the idea of a former Australian prime minister taking on a role effectively representing another country, uh, quite possibly against the interests of your own, I find extraordinary. I mean, this isn't 1920 when, you know, George Reid, a former prime minister, could go into the British House of Commons, or, you know, uh, um, you know Stanley Melbourne Pr- Bruce going into the House of Lords. I mean. Um, Australia ceased to be British in any meaningful sense uh, several decades ago, uh, for the reasons that Maria was just talking about. I mean, a British reorientation to Europe and Australian reorientation to Asia. Um, so it strikes me as a remarkable kind of nostalgic politics. Although, as Mark says, I mean, it does tell us something again that we, I suppose, already knew about Abbott. I mean, this is a man who tried to reintroduce knighthoods and. And then offered one of the early ones to Prince Philip. Um, so in that sense, it, it you know kind of adds up. But in every other sense, I find it one of the most bizarre post prime ministerial careers imaginable. Where uh, John Gorton advertised whiskey uh, after he ceased to be prime minister, but um, this strikes me as uh, at another level again. Yeah,
1: Mark, do you think it tells us anything about the UK government's attitude towards climate change? Now I know that. Tony Abbott is going there to do a trade role but the next UN climate conference is due to take place in Glasgow next year and Tony Abbott of course has previously said that climate change is probably doing good. He's compared policies to tackle it to primitive people once killing goats to appease the volcano gods. Does this appointment tell us anything about those attitudes
2: in the UK government to tackling climate change? Of course, these are all very sensible observations that uh, Tony Abbott made. <laughs> I, I, think, I, I, I think these uh, these strange things that he said uh, that you just quoted. Uh, he actually made those comments in Britain, if my memory serves correctly, um, which is uh, you know part of the way he has been behaving really since uh, losing the prime ministership. He he made multiple trips to the UK and uh, and found a willing audience of. Uh, conservatives on within the conservative party and particularly the sort of pro-Brexit hardliners and he started playing to them and I think Tony Abbott uh, as we know the former pugilist he's always up for the political fight and this was a juicy political fight that he could uh, go and join uh, much harder to be doing so in Australia while there's a government of his own party there and it's not run by Malcolm Turnbull so that fight's already been been kind of uh, run and won on his part um and so I think he thought, well, I can go over there and uh, you know bay for the uh, uh, for the right wing over there, and that's what he's doing. As to the point about climate change, funnily enough, this is one area where I think um, the uh, the conservative government over there is far far ahead of uh, the conservatives on this side of. Uh, Um, The the world. And um, I don't think it's going to have that much effect. I mean, you can make many criticisms of Boris Johnson's government, and certainly people on the left broadly do, of course. But um, he's far more enlightened when it comes to climate change and has been for a long time. And in fact, really, Johnson is much more like Morrison and some others, and and indeed Turnbull, uh, than he is like uh, Abbott in my view. I mean, he eventually came around to you know the the sort of Brexit position uh, and very strongly advocated, and of course won an election quite decisively uh, on his position on it. But he famously, uh, at the time of the the referendum, um, uh, you know, had an editorial. had supposedly written out two different op eds or editorials. Um, uh, one in favour and one against, and didn't know which one to file until the very last minute. He, you know, he's he's not not he wasn't particularly ideological on the question uh, on climate change. As I say, I think he's a bit more enlightened. Britain's been uh, much more uh, aggressively pursuing, um, you know, transfer uh, transformation of its energy sector and other aspects of its economy. And uh, if Tony Abbott has any influence on their position on climate change, that would be a very deleterious uh, situation for the UK and indeed for the world.
3: Oh, well, yes, I mean, um, if I could perhaps take up the, the point Maria made about the, the kind of Brexiteer nostalgia about Commonwealth, which I think is really interesting. Um, and it's a point that I know my historical colleague, Stuart uh, Ward, who, who, you know, is Australian, works in, in Denmark has made. And, you know, it's that, many Brexiteers really didn't expect to win, and that's certainly true of Johnson. And so when they did win, they are kind of left with this vacuum. What happens next? How do we define Britain's role in in, in the world, uh, you know, given that this unexpected departure from the EU is now on the cards? And the whole global Britain thing was kind of what they came up with. And as an aspect of that, it was, it's this kind of nostalgic idea that you can somehow reconstruct a set of relationships that basically dissolved in the nineteen. 19- or at the latest, the 1970s, with places like Australia, New Zealand and so on. Um, you know, it's kind of based on these ideas about the Anglosphere and the English-speaking peoples, uh, which have been quite popular, on you know, amongst a section of the right in Britain um, and, and in the United States, for that matter, um, over the last, you know, 20 years. But... Um, it's, uh, it seems to be, uh, you know, to my mind, an incredibly nostalgic and unrealistic form of, of politics, uh, uh, you know, for, for Britain going forward.
4: I mean, what's kind of ironic as well about um, thinking about all oh, this nostalgia is that, of course, the imperial preference system that Britain adopted at the turn of the century and, and flow through to basically their turn to Europe was really bad ultimately for the British economy because it meant that, uh, they didn't innovate and they didn't compete well. And so, um, even though they had a, a net advantage after the Second World War because everyone else's industries on the com, the, on the continent had just been literally blown up, um, it meant that, you know, that is one of the reasons why the crisis in the 1970s and the 1980s in Britain was so, very much acute because they hadn't adapted, and they hadn't made these changes to their system because they hadn't faced the kind of pressure to do that. And, of course, this is, like, obviously not analogous to what will probably happen now, but it is a strange thing to be nostalgic about when you think about it.
0: There's also a pragmatic reason, and I think despite the many varied um, comment, comments uh, from an Australian perspective about our former Prime Minister and the somewhat polarising effect that that he has publicly, we do have to wonder. Well, what was the thinking about picking someone like him? And when you're in the situation of Great Britain trying to re-establish relationships, having someone who's very high profile is incredibly important. And secondly, there is this this world of trade envoys is alive and well, and there are many many people who do this, including uh, for Australia. We have envoys for general trade, uh, for fo- focused on particular regions. Envoys from states and territories, envoys for defence trade, but mostly they don't um, come above the radar in terms of public awareness. They, they they have public scrutiny, but but not public awareness. And when you look through the list of the types of people who are there, lots of retired generals, lots of retired ambassadors, some retired politicians. It's actually because of their networks. So if you have a very high profile former prime minister who did lead a government that was a member that was of a country that is a member of the Commonwealth and Great Britain is looking to reestablish you know, using nostalgia, but there's some really pragmatic reasons why. Uh, why wouldn't you get someone who's high profile, probably has the direct phone numbers of half of the most important influential people in that system. And also from an Australian perspective, actually knows how Australia works and how the Indo-Pacific works, another area that Great Britain's looking for. So there is a A a pragmatic reason that you could see behind this. Be interesting to see how it plays out. And of course, for Australia, well, what's he telling another country about our interests based on his knowledge as Prime Minister and there are some very strict guidelines for public servants or anyone who has been in that kind of position of trust about how they use it. So we'd need to see some assurance from the government that they're dealing it in any way with him in a way that protects Australia's interests.
2: Can I just buy in there because I think just uh, to make an excellent point about uh, his expertise, Tony Abbott's expertise in this in this field. Um, I travelled with him. I think it was in twenty fourteen. On a on a trip that we went uh, from Tokyo to Seoul and then to Beijing, and essentially stitched up, um, or did the you know did the final sign off in two out of three uh, free trade agreements, um, it was a it was a tour de force of of uh, trade policy achievement of of actually making material gains for Australia in terms of uh, trading arrangements with those northern Asian powers. And uh, I remember um, writing at the time that uh, they should dump this whole idea of, uh, of of Abbott's government being, you know, him being the infra- infrastructure prime minister, which is hard to say and wasn't actually achieved anyway. And they should have, you know, tried, <coughs> excuse me, tried to sell the idea of him as the, the trade prime minister – because he clearly had put runs on the board where other prime ministers hadn't and uh, jacinta 's point about abbott 's contacts is correct, and also his he has that certain kind of um, we, we see it now of course in in the figure of donald trump and this is sort of you know one of the few things on the plus side of trump 's ledger um, Abbott has this too, and that is that ability to cut through a whole bunch of kind of um, you know, sclerotic paraphernalia or procedure and just speak directly. And initially when Abbott was Prime Minister, his willingness his capacity to speak directly uh, to put on the on the table clearly what Australia wanted and why uh actually paid quite a few dividends in um, in a number of dif- diplomatic ways most particularly in trade so him as a trade envoy envoy in that regard yeah you'd say that's uh that's something that may have um some Attraction for the u k particularly given the tendency that u uh, k trade bureaucrats have for merely mouthedness and uh, we 've seen you know the way trade policy has been run in the u k in recent years uh, culminating in brexit, and you can understand why there 's some frustration there, so maybe Abbott offers um, you know that kind of um, cut through in some ways that uh, that other people haven 't been able to achieve but just finally one point. The, that, the other issue that Jacinda raised about, um, I guess, what you'd call corporate knowledge and how that is used, we've seen Australian politicians very fast and loose uh, in their uh, taking up of positions after they've been ministers um, and using information or at least being custodians of information that makes them very attractive to subsequent employers, information that technically the Australian people own and own the right to uh, the the continued security of. Uh, and that is a genuine question about what Tony Abbott knows and how he would use that in this role operating for for a foreign government.
3: That's really the central issue, isn't it? I mean, Mm. a former Australian Prime Minister going off to work for a foreign government in negotiations that could well involve damage to Australia's trade prospects. I mean, it's unheard of in generations. I I can't think of any anything comparable in the Australian case, Uh, You have to go back to the period when the British Empire was still with us and that kind of lateral movement, you know, Lord Casey uh, taking up a a role of British representative and so on during the Second World War. I mean, uh, that kind of thing uh, made sense in that that context when there was a kind of pan-Britishness. But that world's over and and Britain is indeed a foreign country and I think those sorts of issues are going to be very problematic around this. Yeah, we do
0: have examples with other countries though and it mightn't be clearly directly working on behalf of a government but we have some very high-profile former ministers, um, Andrew Robb, one of them, for example, who have taken up positions with uh, Chinese-owned companies which, of course, as we all know quite famously must Uh, comply with some fairly intrusive laws in terms of the Chinese Communist Party's uh, access to information and also some speculation uh, within the Australian environment about whether these former ministers and other senior people were acting in Australia's interest for a country that we're not in the best of relations with at the moment.
3: Yeah, but, but I mean, this is it's a another step. between a minister and a prime minister Absolutely. Though, too, isn't it? Yeah. And, and you know, the idea of working for a company, even though we know that these mm. companies have uh, very close, as you say, relationships with the Chinese government, does give a kind of cover. Oh, you know, I'm working for a company. This is working for another government. Mm, it's working for clearly. a foreign
2: government. Well,
4: I mean, yeah. I don't, don't even think he would be subject to the voluntary ministerial code of conduct because I think that usually covers a period of just two years and, of mm. course, You know, Mr. Abbott hasn't been in the executive for for around five now. Um, But it does sort of, you know, I mean, it's funny, but every couple of weeks we're right back to the question of, Mm, we don't seem to have a Commonwealth Integrity Commission. There are all kinds of problems with governance um, structures in this country in terms of accountability and ultimately uh, the people who are most likely to benefit from these scenarios are actually in charge of the rules and they're not very interested in changing them to sort of bring in transparency and shine a light on their own activities. And we ultimately have to rely on the assurances of former ministers and um, you know, the findings of, uh, you know, bureauc- bureaucracies that are not actually equipped to investigate these matters fully.
1: Hmm. Lots of nodding of heads at the discussion there of a Commonwealth Integrity Commission. But I do want to take a break in a second. And before we go to that, I just want to turn to matters closer to home, which was, of course, these two things that happened in Australia-China relations last week. You know, first of all, the, pl- the press club address from the from China's deputy chief of mission where we talked about the shocking news of a proposal coming from Australia – for a coronavirus uh, in investigation, and then of course we saw Australia taking more of a uh, a stand against uh, against China and uh, other foreign governments that uh, state governments and territory governments and indeed universities might uh, strike a deal with. Jacinta, what do you believe is the government's long-term goal in its relationship with Beijing?
0: Well, we had a very clear statement of the long-term goal by the foreign minister and the defence minister at the end of Osmin. The Australia US um, ministers meeting, and that was clearly differentiating characteristics of Australia's relationship with China. Very, um, it's very well known that China is our number one trading partner, but that's not everything. They're not the number one, or even in the the top five um, sources of foreign direct investment. Um, there's a mixed experience in in a range of other things that affect our economy, our culture, our society, and of course a. a, a problematic relationship between that foreign government and the relationship it feels it has with Australians who are of uh, Chinese heritage, uh, including um, a, a, some very difficult issues with freedom of Chinese language press in Australia. So the Australian government through those ministers has come out and said, well, we do have a relationship with that, with that country. We have a relationship with that government. It is broad and it is complex, but we're not going to, uh, Kowtow to threats. Um, we're also not going to agree with assumptions that that government makes about Australia's motivations. And probably the biggest trump card that we have in that, excusing the pun, is that we have, uh, we are a democracy. We're a very strong, vibrant democracy. We have transparency in, um, in principle. And if not, um, it will, we have accountability. So these things will always come out and, and there will all, there's always, um, a form of responsible government it's very problematic because China is the you know the bull in the China shop so to speak uh, in our region and it's not just Australia that the Chinese government is attacking if you take a, a quick look around the world anywhere where there are um, significant Chinese economic interests and there's a high correlation with um, strong civil society strong democracies and free press in any of these countries there's a stoush that the Chinese Communist Party is having with those with those countries. Um, Look, this isn't what China planned. I think that the pressure from coronavirus has caused a bit of a strategic miscalculation on the part of China. It was quite comfortably playing off bilateral relations with each other. Uh, uh, It has a very significant um, uh, ongoing Uh, fight with the Philippines over contested territories, and it it has territorial disputes with all of its neighbours. It's almost gone to war with India over a land border a few times in the past year, and we've actually seen the closest we've come to that erupting. Conflict that, that usually everyone would be able to paper over or calm down. And these security things that usually occur in a space that only academics and interested commentators look at is now diving squarely into the day-to-day life of Australians and others. So um, we do see that there's this weird pressure being put very much out of Beijing to try and push a line that had been working on the power of the economy, uh, the destiny of of China and its rewriting of its own history around it. And it's all becoming a little bit rickety. And I think that the the great example of that was this quite extraordinary uh, uh, display we saw at the National Press Club last week with the deputy ambassador of the Chinese Embassy here in Canberra pushing a line that is um that that's just just quite extraordinary and really just wasn't believed by anyone who was listening to it.
1: Maria, what do you make of the uh, relations between Australia and China? Do you see any, any way out of what is what appears to be a kind of diplomatic deep freeze?
4: I, I actually I have a, a small comment and, and then a question really for Jacinta as she seems to know a lot more about this than I do. Um, I guess one of the things I've sort of found kind of interesting is, um, as someone who is not um, a foreign policy expert, is that um, – it seems like some of the decisions that we've been making recently obviously have long running antecedents because this relationship has clearly been strained for a long time. But we is, I mean, like, Jacinta, like, do you think it's sort of an accurate interpretation of what is going on? Is that in the government's decision to sort of, uh, you know, go out on, on its own calling for an inquiry, we're sort of now we were sort of forced into a position where if we don't defend ourselves effectively, we'll be giving in to bullying behaviour? Um, or do you think this is actually much more coherently part of a long-term
0: set of behaviours by our government? Look, great question. And it's interesting because you've gone to the heart of the matter, which is about what's the narrative? And if you look at what the Australian government said, and we would—it is important to note that the Australian government um, said we really need to find out what's happening. This is a global pandemic. This is the most extraordinary uh, event in living memory in terms of impact across all parts of society. It's been likened to a world war in terms of the impact it has, with a different overlay because we're so connected now, so interconnected, uh, and so much travel. Um, so. The Australian government saying we really need to find out what's going on would appear to the reasonable person to be a very reasonable question to ask. And part of the reason for that was that we now know that it took a very long time for any information to come out publicly from Beijing about what was going on. There's some interesting releases of Australia's diplomatic cables at the time, which um, have been criticised, including by Senator Patrick as showing that the Australian embassy was out of touch. Well, in an authoritarian government, it's really hard to be in touch. So they were reporting what the Chinese government was saying about, about the issue. So in a context of hiding and apparent cover up, um, asking a very reasonable question about an inquiry takes on a different tone. And again, it goes to this narrative where China has been quite, um, uh, defensive in a very bullying way, and it 's rolled into this belligerence thats in some ways seems to be a little bit out of control it 's not what it 's not the way the Chinese government has wanted to portray itself, but it is what 's happened uh, and It is important to note that that proposal from Australia was taken on by the by the European Union. And uh, it has been agreed to with Australia and China as the uh, co-sponsors. So this is done and dusted that there will be an inquiry. China just wanted to make sure the language didn't suggest at all that, um, that, the, that China was the source of, um, of the infection.
1: All right. Well, this seems like a good place to take a quick break. So join us for more after these messages.
2: Wow. Nice. Yeah.
0: Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay,
1: well, welcome back. I'm still here with Jacinta Carroll, Frank Bongiorno, Maria Taflaga, and joining us remotely, Professor Mark Kenny. So, Mark, up before the break, we were talking about that uh, very interesting address at the, at the press club, and you had a point that you wanted to make.
2: Yeah just simply I've, I I just was making the point about the inquiry into the outbreak in Wuhan and uh how um as the Australian government has correctly said it's unremarkable that the world should want to know uh how it happened uh what 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 can be learned from the way it was handled and the extent to which the mishandling of it uh, the withholding of information or and 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 po- possibly the inept management of the uh situation uh in the early days uh, resulted in what has become uh, the worst outbreak in the world uh, and, uh, you know, really for a, for a um, you know, best part of a century. Um, so, you know, that's completely legitimate. But I think it does need to be separated from the role Australia played in actually pushing for it. And I think there is a legitimate criticism to be made of Australia singularly front-running on Uh, on this issue. Um, China is now saying, uh, as as we know from uh, the way it's been put uh, by that uh, address at the press club, uh, that uh, it could have been involved in those discussions from the beginning. I think that is, at least in principle, absolutely right. I don't see why there should not have been some leader-to-leader conversation about what Australia was proposing prior to the matter going public. That is the way diplomacy normally works. Now, Having said that, it may have been actually problematic in this case because, uh, as we know, there is virtually no conversation going on government to government between China and Australia at the moment and uh, the relations have been uh, in in the... uh at least at a low temperature if not at a freeze and it's been at a freeze a few times over recent years so whether that would have actually achieved anything I don't know but I think uh, there is a criticism to be made of the Australian government's diplomacy around this issue rather than its actual policy intentions which I think are completely defensible I think there's nothing wrong with the policy intention but I don't think Australia as a, a, an economy that is so uh, uh, so enmeshed with the Chinese economy in terms of that uh, extraordinary Extraordinarily fruitful trade relationship. I don't think we should have been quite so um, out there by ourselves initially, because we've become, in a sense, the target of China's ire about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really important that, as Mark said, that uh, while there were the some very dramatic flourishes, including um, quoting from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, "Et tu, Brute?" about uh, betrayal um, of China by Australia. It is important to note that. Um, it has been very problematic for any anyone in the Australian government to make contact with the Chinese government. Uh, and look, we could talk about who's to blame, but certainly it's been around 10 months, 11 months, since anyone has been able to make contact from the Australian government with their counterparts or others in the Chinese government. So we are in a state of deep freeze. Um, what is useful, and I think the, the role that Australia should play and, and play a little bit more overtly, is one of bringing together our neighbours in this region. We have a a way of of dealing with things in the ASEAN group, which is about non-interference and being non-aligned. But this group of countries all have issues with the way that uh, the Chinese government is projecting itself and its attempts to bully individual countries into going along with its its way. Um, Australia could learn from the way we have dealt with ASEAN and partnered with them in other areas, such as counterterrorism. to say, well, why don't we just jointly work out a sensible way to do this that minimises um, not only the propaganda value that might be used uh, by the Chinese government in terms of this, but provides some hook, some opportunity to bring them into a more reasonable way of behaviour.
1: Okay, so let's move on. There was a very, there was a very interesting poll that came out last week, which showed that perhaps somewhat surprisingly, 60% of uh, the respondents in Australia would support compulsory tracking bracelets for people who had been diagnosed with coronavirus and were uh, practicing self- Isolation, Mark, let me turn to you first. What do you think that says about uh, australian 's willingness to uh, give up sort of personal liberty when faced with something like a pandemic or indeed give up other people's personal liberty
2: yeah, I think it 's very disturbing, martin, uh, when when you think about it that uh, we are prepared to in such numbers uh, consider such extraordinarily denials of of freedoms and, uh, you know, the, the kind of, um, what you might call the accoutrements of, uh, of authoritarianism. Um, we've long had reason to be concerned about how strongly, particularly newer entrants into our democratic process, that is younger voters, um, how strongly they are committed to, uh, democratic norms and freedoms and, uh, whether they are convinced that democracy is the, the the you know the best system. That's been a concern for a while. But we've seen here, uh, I guess, two things happening that are, that that give us cause for concern. One is that governments are taking, for reasons that. Virtually everyone um, accepts governments are taking enormous amount of authority in order to manage this pandemic, clamping down on personal freedoms in all kinds of ways. But we also see a very strong level of support for that from voters. Uh, again, probably because people regard the common enemy, that being the virus, as the prime concern, uh, and presumably they, they they regard these powers as both necessary and temporary. But the extent to which They are prepared to go, and which this poll suggests, the extent to which they are prepared to see that authority exercised and the removal of personal freedoms and the placement of, uh, you know, tracking devices, for example, is very alarming. And I think that goes to, um, you know, a very concerning issue about trust and cohesion in society. We we hear a lot said about political trust, trust in institutions, in politicians, in the media. But another important aspect of a properly functioning society is a degree of social trust, uh, that is, trust... Of fellow citizens. And this poll suggests that people are very worried about the idea of someone with uh, coronavirus just not behaving responsibly, and they're prepared to take extraordinary action to make sure that they do. Maria, what did you make of the results of that poll?
4: Well, like everyone else, I was a bit alarmed, but I also kind of note that um, people uh, were less supportive um, of having to go to a dedicated facility. So, I mean, I think what is actually kind of what I would really like to know is, um, I guess, a bit more about the sort of demographics of individuals sort of um, supporting or not supporting um, these kinds of measures, where they live, how old they are, what kind of threat perception they feel, how long they've been in lockdown, all of these kinds of things. I mean, I think on the surface level, these um, figures are alarming, but kind of looking at the actual figures themselves you know there is a bit of a a bit of some contradictory kind of information um, in these um, polls like I, I think it's extraordinary that that more people would be happy to wear a bracelet or 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 have other people wear a bracelet than forcing them to go somewhere else I think that says something about how people kind of want to spend their time um, in lockdown um, but I I would also um, I guess, sort of say that I think these figures are those from a a population that is um, stressed and has actually not had any opportunity to discuss really on any level what wearing a tracking bracelet really means. I don't think people necessarily have a, a coherent understanding of the total implications of this um, statement, particularly if they were asked a question first about having to like leave their family and go into hotel quarantine, which we've heard a lot about, which is pretty scary, right? Um, poorly managed security, terrible food, people being moved around all the time, that kind of stuff. So I, I'm a little less, um, I guess, concerned. Um, I would be very concerned if in two years time, people were still saying this. Then I would well, be, can, can, I, can I
2: jump in there, Maria? It, it's interesting, mm. isn't it? We all carry around a personal tracking device anyway, which is a mobile phone with GPS, and we know security agencies, for example, can track those phones to uh, you know a very high degree of granularity. Uh, I guess what people are saying is they, they, they want these tracking devices on people so there would be an alarm that would go off before someone moved out of their quarantine um, or, or their isolation and... and um, Perhaps we shouldn't be as surprised as we are, because, as I say, everyone has. Well, we, we know people willingly hand over their data in all kinds of ways these days, and um, and they carry around these phones that uh, geolocate them um, anyway.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder how much people are sort of actually connecting all the dots about the full implications. I mean, perhaps what they're really thinking about is, well, if we have this kind of measure in place, then I can be secure in the knowledge that when I'm allowed to move around again, the people that are not allowed to move around aren't moving around. Um, but you're right. I mean, what, is it 6 million people have downloaded the COVID Safe app, which is about a third of... um the population, and uh, so I think that kind of gives us a sense of the number of people that are sort of prepared to give over this data, and those that aren't. And it's actually not that many. Like it's,
3: it seems reasonable calculation. I mean, people are aware, particularly with the second wave in Victoria, that it, you know it, it takes a relatively small number of people to uh, break quarantine, um, and you have a disaster on your hands. And and so there is a kind of, I think a reasonable, ra- you know, a, a, a rational calculation about about that. And, you know, th- this kind of debate recurs, doesn't it? How obedient are Australians? You know, there's this kind of anti-authoritarian, uh, you know, sort of uh, culture that we're supposed to have, larrikinism and all the rest of it. And, of course, every time a government, you know, uh, I- introduces a, a dob in a dolce sheet line or something, uh We have one of these debates in the media, and there's never any shortage of people ringing up to dob in a doll sheet. Um, But people do have a strong sense of the need for collective responsibility. And I suspect, as Maria's suggested, that's been accentuated, given the stresses that people are under and the damage to their own lives and livelihoods and so on that they know. Can come from really small numbers of people um, not doing what they consider the right thing.
1: Jacinta, is that how you interpreted the outcome of that poll? Uh, a Australian spirit of, you know, collective.
0: Well, what we've seen in Australia is that we've got certainly a very a highly educated population. We do have a very high level of volunteerism and other things that are indicators. Of a willingness to see yourself, not just, not as an individual, but as part of a community. And again, we've talked about authoritarianism versus democracy, being actively responsible for the direction that your, your country goes. And we've seen extraordinarily high levels of compliance that we see every day. We saw it as we were all coming into this room today, um, about Australians understanding their responsibility to do something about this. My, I was a bit surprised to see this poll, I have to say, for a variety of reasons. And, um, one is that I understand a quite different thing about surveillance devices and tracking devices. And it led me to ponder, well, what's, what were people thinking of when they were answering this question? And that, in a, in a principled way, goes to educated and informed democracy. So what was it that we're talking about? And it could be that you you have in mind, well, I've got my COVID safe app. So I've got a tracking device that is managed in an appropriate way that isn't invading my privacy that is there if need be to to track. Um, it could be, and I have seen this worryingly a lot in the legislative realm when there have been proposals for um, alternatives to to incarceration or certain offences and also debate around use of surveillance and tracking devices. There seems to be more a Hollywood idea of what surveillance and tracking looks like and also an understanding that um, that it, it can just happen out there that there are all these capabilities that can just it's an all-seeing eye that can, then can collect things and that's okay as long as it's for other people or exactly it's absolutely not okay from from my perspective, the discussion of anything to do with surveillance or tracking of an individual, with any form of controls over it does go to the heart of the individual's rights in Australia and that is something that is taken with extraordinary gravity with our legislators uh, when we have um, looked at and we do have some um, some. Um, powers in Australian law currently to enable tracking of individuals. The threshold for doing that is extraordinarily high as it should be because it does actually impinge on a person's inherent rights. So, what does this mean? Um, it lies, damn lies and statistics. It probably depends upon what information was given to someone beforehand about what, what is meant by that, as we see from this this poll probably not a lot, so it goes to people's assumptions. Uh, However, if this came to inform any kind of policy discussion, what I've seen in the security space is that you need to give uh, a holistic approach to dealing with the issue that has a whole range of controls that start at and are mostly constituted by volunteer actions and a support of care and community understanding in order to deal with the issue, which is health risk. And any consideration of something that it is such an extreme end as certainly the way I would see surveillance and active live monitoring uh, would need to be something that is only done in extraordinary circumstances uh, and in accordance with some very specific cases. There, there, of course, isn't a word picture around what was in mind what kind of surveillance and tracking are we talking about? But um, my sense is people were probably thinking it was the COVID safe app, but we actually don't know. If they are thinking of that Simpsons episode where the NSA is listening into everyone and Bart says the wrong thing on the phone, well, that's more problematic because that does eat away at the way we do deal with privacy issues in this country.
1: Now, staying with that poll, but shifting the topic somewhat, because obviously aged care has continued to be a very significant issue over the last week. That poll asked respondents who they thought was to blame for the outbreaks in aged care, and they came back with a response that the providers uh, were to blame. 42% said that. 30% said the state government to blame and 28% said the federal government to blame, which is very interesting considering aged care is a federal responsibility. Mark, what did you make of that?
2: Well, one of the things I made about it was that uh, Scott Morrison uh, was very clever and very successful in the early stages of uh, the outbreak at St Basil's and some of those other Victorian uh, nursing homes in remaining silent, uh, essentially sort of roper doping almost, and allowing uh, the Victorian government, which was already besieged by the origins of the outbreak, the the breakdown in hotel quarantine, allowing the Victorian government to essentially um, be uh, tagged with with this failure as well. But of course, we know nursing homes are uh, regulated and funded uh by the commonwealth they are in the commonwealth's purview and that has gradually um you know come out and been been more clearly established but i think it didn't really seep into many voters minds and in some cases probably still hasn't so uh the commonwealth which is not known for service delivery, this overwhelming bulk of services that people consume are delivered by their state governments. Um, the Commonwealth has direct responsibility here and has serially muffed this area for a long time. That's why there was a Royal Commission going on into the aged care sector because it is chronically underfunded, beset with problems, all kinds of you know, horror stories of uh, of people's uh, dignity and rights being compromised and um, this uh, pandemic has come along and we really shone a light on that and that's why the Royal Commission has swung its attention into the COVID area because there was a Royal Commission already going on because this issue needed to be managed.
1: Maria, do you think that the outcome of that poll highlights in in some way that Australians tend to think as state governments as being responsible for service delivery?
4: State governments are responsible for health. I think most voters understand that aged care is ultimately, you know, a, a health issue. When you sort of think about it in kind of pragmatic terms, the reason why it's a federal responsibility is because uh, ultimately the states didn't have the money to really move into this area. And so the federal government did. Um, I think in the Whitlam years, but I don't remember. Maybe Frank knows. Um, but what I think is most interesting about this whole episode is, well, what are we not talking about? And what we're not talking about is what the federal government intends to do to fix this situation. And I guess the thing that really concerns me is, Every, uh, you know, every staff member that is, uh, focused on how do we shift blame from us to the state government? Um, how, you know, how do we manage or massage these lines? How do we run our campaigns? Is not time they're spending. Working out how to fix aged care, which is something they already knew was a shambles and a mess. And, you know, without wanting to go on about it, like they've been the government for seven years. Um, and they were the government for, uh, 12 years before Labor was as well. So, you know, like we have known that there are problems in the aged care system for, for decades. And whilst they certainly have improved in the last two decades, um, we know that they haven't been, Adequate. And I think that is actually kind of getting lost in the kind of bigger picture of who's at fault. And, you know, perhaps this is overly cynical of me, but that's perhaps what the government is hoping for. Like a debate about who is responsible is better than what is the government going to do to fix it.
0: We we can't look at this without um, the overlay of politics. And unfortunately, it has read its ugly head around aged care. And, um, You can see this partisan politics play out in the way, unfortunately, the federal government deals with Victoria. And we can also see, interestingly, from New Zealand having an election pop up and we have state elections. Northern Territory wasn't so affected, but the way that government uh, dealt with and is seen to have successfully managed coronavirus appeared to be a significant part in them retaining government. And it is interesting to see forthcoming Queensland elections and and so on, how this is being played out. As a former public servant sitting around the table, one thing that occurred to me in watching this um, nasty fight about who's to blame between the federal and state governments about aged care, um, as well as the economy, which, which blew up today, is that I've been involved in a number of issues that were high profile and anything that is complex will have a number of agencies involved. The ones that work well are the ones where all of those different parts acknowledge that they all share a a role with a shared mission. Right now, it's very clear that we need to do some things around aged care. As Mark rightly said, we have a standing Royal Commission that has unearthed some horrific things about the way this is managed. We do know that as an area that was privatised and has been um, deregulated to a certain extent and there's an active debate about how do you regulate, how do you review and manage, how do you ensure that there is a shared understanding with providers Right now, we're not seeing anything that looks like a good solution could come out because there's no good faith between those parties. Uh, And I I couldn't agree with Maria's comments before. This is not a good picture and it's certainly not having um, members of our community who are potentially affected at the centre? How do we care for people, um, not only regardless of their age, but those who are most vulnerable be- because of their age and most vulnerable in the current pandemic? And it just doesn't look good to be throwing mud at each other.
1: And But of course, fixing it is also going to be incredibly expensive for the government. There was the research that came out last week that uh, was prepared for the Aged Care Royal Commission, which found that an extra $621 million a year would Be needed to lift all aged care homes in Australia up to just basic standards. It's not up to great standards. That's up to basic standards. Frank, as a historian, looker looking at all of this, do you think the the significant attention that's being paid to uh, aged care at the moment might shift public attitudes to how we think about care and where we where we spend spend our money?
3: Well, I guess COVID has a great talent, doesn't it, for for sort of hunting out um, uh, deep-seated, long-standing problems that everyone kind of, well, everyone knows, uh, you know, are there, um, but which we don't prioritise, we don't deal properly with. And, and aged care is one of those. Um, uh, as we've discussed, it was subject to Royal Commission before before COVID. Um, this has clearly raised the profile of it enormously. I think as a community, we're still... Not processing the scale of loss, um, that has occurred particularly in Victoria during this second wave that at the moment that is still, uh, bereavement on the part of families, I think. And I think as a community, we are a long way from actually, um, you know, grappling with the fact that, that hundreds of people have died. And this is like, if, you know, it's like several Victorian bushfires, you know, uh, if you think of it in that, those sorts of terms. Um, and I think when we do, uh, it is going to raise the profile of, of aged care as an issue. And it, it will remind us of the point that I think Jacinta made very well. It's about, uh, interagency stuff, but it's about federalism. I mean, when we stuff up federalism, people die. And I've, I'm mean, giving lectures back, you know, when I was in London, for instance, pointing out that federalism can seem an, an arcane thing. But because it touches on areas like aged care or health, um, it is actually a matter of life and death. And, and I think COVID has really underlined that, that point that, that unless we manage federalism well, um, we 're going to run into tragedy and and the aged care issue I think is is one of the illustrations of that, but there are clearly others as well I mean you know the the whole issue of border closures strikes me as a a really difficult and potentially damaging issue for lives and for for livelihoods um, again, because it looks like to me a failure of federalism we 've got state governments quite frankly, I think have their eye on the next election um, and, and are really not putting forward a, a convincing case for why you need a border closure between two states that have no infections or very low levels of infection. And I can't see an easy way out of that, this side of of a vaccine. Um, and and. I don't really know um, what the solution is if you don't have a federal government that's actually willing to to ride roughshod over over state governments that I think are being opportunistic in a number of cases.
4: I mean, I think what is kind of interesting finally about aged care, right, is that, well, one of the biggest demographics in society are are baby boomers and the oldest of them are starting to push 70 and I imagine they're, they're either dealing with their parents who are in aged care or are starting to plan for themselves. And if you think that they're not going to transform ageing and dying like they transformed everything else, well, you're you're wrong.
0: Martin did ask, though, about how much this is going to cost, which is a really important thing. And um, as Frank rightly said, a, a crisis such as this has placed a great stressor on everything, and anything that's got cracks in it is is really you know, imploding. Um As we look at this, one of the big issues with aged care, of course, is that we're looking at a a privatised industry and much in Australia um, since the reforms of Paul Keating have been on market capital and the market providing the answer. What we've seen, whether it's on um, ensuring that we can get enough PPE flown into Australia, um, whether we can guarantee some staple goods. And not only Australia, we're very well off in those regards, but many other countries are having these questions again. It really is throwing up the issue of what is the role of the state? What are the goods, the assets, the resources of the Australian people? Where do they go? Do they go to um, ASX top 100 listed com- companies or the New York Stock Exchange listed companies or multinational corporations? Or is there a different way of ensuring that that is for the Australian people? And as we deregulate and let the market work, how are we ensuring through our elected representatives that we're dipping into that at whatever level of government, local government as well, which has again been shown to be um, challenged through the bushfires as well as through COVID, um, how do all of these areas work together in an effective way between the private sector and the public sector to provide the kind of country we we want and the expectation of care we have for each other?
1: All right, well, we are coming close to time. But before we close up, there is one other issue that I would like to touch on, particularly as we've got you here, Jacinta. A couple of weeks ago, we saw ASIO take to Twitter to announce their uh, their public presence on that particular platform. And their first tweet said, Hi, internet, ASIO here. I spy a new Twitter account. We thought it would be fun if you followed us for a change. What's What's behind our spy agencies suddenly wanting to have a kind of public presence like this?
0: Yeah, look, it's really interesting. And I would add that that one had a couple of cute emoticons of spies in trench coats and hats and... If you do want to follow ASIO on Twitter, you can't take at ASIO because that was taken some years ago by by a bright thinking young Australian. Um, but it, so it's ASIOGovAustralia. Australia. Look, this is this is not unexpected. Um We've seen over the past few years, notably the heads of intelligence agencies coming out to give a series of first of speeches. So we had uh, Nick Warner, who was the head of Australian Secret Intelligence Service, ASIS, and is now the head of the overarching agency, the Office of, Na- of National Assessment, um, coming out and making a speech. His, pre- his um, uh The person who's come after him has done this as well. And of course, very notably, the current Director General of Security, Mike Burgess, who previously was the head of the Australian Signals Directorate, had made a number of public statements when he came into that role. And look, Mike Burgess is very much the centre of this particular move from ASIO. We know that when he came into his role at ASD, um, having been in government, gone out to Telstra and come back, he said, I really want to be more open. We need to communicate with the Australian people about what we do. And this is what we've seen coming through all of these various heads speaking. Of course, Duncan Lewis, his predecessor at ASIO, of course, was very high profile making public statements as well. Um, so there's a few things. Uh, at a principal level, this is about responsible government in action. We have a range of agencies that are very secretive. Uh, what they do is not known to the public generally in detail, um, there are a, a, an array of oversight and review mechanisms to ensure that our politicians and statutory appointments are looking at what they do. But of course, you can't communicate too much when you're dealing with matters that might affect individuals' privacy and also some very significant and intrusive powers, which, which we've touched on a bit before in terms of surveillance. So, that's great. Um, the leaders are out and talking more. Um, a few of them have got some social media handles. We have, I think it's about a year since Mike Burgess has been in ASIO. So that's a reasonable time to expect that this, um, this tweet would come out. And, um, you might notice ASIO's also launched a rebranding. So it can be seen in terms of marketing. And that's actually probably the most prosaic thing around it. Um, the highfalutin pieces they're out. These agencies, security agencies, are talking more intelligence agencies. But what are they saying? Uh, I had a bit of a look back over the almost two years that the Australian Signals Directorate has had an online presence and it had a a cute little... um, tweet, a really funny tweet, and it created um, headlines at the time as well. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller, which was just great. <laughs> Loved it. Uh, and it, it attracted a lot of followers for ASDs. But what have we seen since then? I've counted up around 135-odd individual tweets since then uh, from ASD. More than 90% of those are recruiting. So mm-hmm. if you think it's marketing, it is. it is recruiting. So it's being seen as a way to get... Um, the wider variety of capabilities, including diversity. Um, uh, obviously, STEM is a big, big focus, um, technically literate um, employees there. So look, follow, follow ASD and I would say probably follow ASIO if you are interested in a job in those areas. The most useful thing for a more general practitioner is that as they're advertising this, they actually do talk about what they do. So it's, it's working quite well in terms of that, that higher order piece as well. You know, did you know that we do this? Did you know that we only do it in accordance with these laws? We actually have to report on this. Did you know that we can do, we can do this, but we only do it under a warrant that's signed by a judge or by the attorney or, or whomever. So it's providing good PR. Um, is it, being incredibly open, is it engaging active debate, um, not particularly, but hey, most other government agencies don 't either
3: they 've both um, those agencies have sponsored official histories too um, mm. in in recent years, which is kind of an interesting um, innovation in terms of of PR and openness and all the rest of it, I guess. Yeah, it's
0: fantastic. Yeah. And hasn't it informed the way we, sitting around this table, who talk about these issues, have been able to talk about it? Um, famously, a lot of myth-busting. So as you mentioned, Frank Azio had um, a very celebrated three-volume history, um, taking us up to the near modern era not quite up, up to now. And again, when Mike Burgess was the head of the Australian Signals Directorate, he commissioned a an official history of, of ASD, which is currently being worked on. So um, this is really important. We do need to know about what these agencies are doing in an appropriate way. But as we've seen from the ASIO official history, it's actually really interesting as well. I mean, there are some cracking little stories in in that, and I hope to see it coming out of ASD as well. So, um, probably the, the bottom line for that is it's good that they're there. Um, it does provide an opportunity to comment and reply. If you're doing something that's interesting that relates to them, um, you know, you can hashtag that in there. Most of the the likes and the retweets from the ASD and and from the a dozen or so tweets we've seen from ASIO to date, are retweeting like agencies. So you won't see a lot of variety, but it, it's a helpful extra voice.
1: I, I think if you're so. doing something interesting that relates to them, you probably <laughs> don't need to let them know on Twitter. I imagine that they've got other means of chucking uh, <laughs> you, know, so. you down. Yeah. Well, look, I'm just wondering,
2: we... Martin, what you have to do to actually be unfollowed by ASIO.
0: <laughs> oh, I know. at <laughs> nice. well, Mean we... tweets.
1: We are coming to the end of the podcast. I, have, but
0: I will just add one. There's a great um, um, book out uh, called, I think it's Our ASEO Files or something like that a few years ago. And it's a compilation of some noted Australians who were given access um, through the archives to their old ASEO files. So there's some fabulous, very well-known Australians who were politically active in the 60s and 70s in particular and they were each asked to write a chapter on how they felt And um, I won't tell you who because you have to read the book, but there's one fantastic chapter, a very noted active person who said, I was so disappointed when I went there to read mine and found that unlike all the stories I'd been telling for years, they had nothing on me and they'd never been interested. It was (laughs) devastating. (laughs) So a lot to see there.
1: Well, on that note, let's, let's finish it for today because that is the end of our 100th episode of Democracy Sausage. So thank you to you for listening and thanks to our excellent panel, Frank Bonciano. Maria Taflaga, Jacinta Carroll and, of course, Mark Kenny.
2: Can I just take this moment, Martin, to uh, also, uh, because this is an auspicious occasion, the 100th podcast, just to thank our listeners. Many of them have uh, come back to us right through the journey uh, with uh, great ideas and suggestions, feedback, uh, sometimes criticism, legitimate even. And uh, so we really really value that kind of input. And I'd like to thank you, Martin Pearce, and your team for the fantastic work that you've done on it and my partner in this podcast, uh, uh, each Monday, Maria Teflaga, uh, because uh, it's 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 it is a job of work. It's one we love doing, but um, it does take some uh, some involvement, some commitment uh, from a number of people. And uh, can I just personally thank everyone who's involved in it? Thank ANU for its uh, undying support for this, and uh, all of the great academics that we bring on from ANU. It's a uh, it's a great privilege to be able to bring them and to bring them together. Sometimes with uh, with other public commentators particularly from on the hill there uh, at capitol hill um and uh, just deliver what i think is a very unique product and i'm uh, very glad to be associated with it so thank you yeah here 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 here, here, here. well done mark wonderful Every stuff room.
1: All right, so uh, don't forget, you can contact the team here or at uh, Democracy Sausage on Twitter as APPS Policy Forum, that's APPS Policy Forum, or you can join the pod squad on Facebook at Policy Forum Pod. And if you are enjoying Democracy Sausage, don't forget to hit subscribe and maybe even leave us a rating. Uh, I'll be back with the Democracy Sausage Extra later this week, but until then, cheerio for now.